This is Rich Procida, producer of Bible Study for Progressives. On Saturday, August 7, at Whittier City Hall, 13230 Penn Street in Whittier, California, at 10 a.m., community members of Whittier, California, will hold a Democracy Can't Wait Town Hall to address voter suppression and the collapse of democracy in America and around the world, including here in Whittier. With the deadline to pass federal voting rights legislation fast approaching, the Truth and Democracy Coalition will host a Democracy Can't Wait Town Hall with Whittier City Council member Henry Bouchot and myself, Rich Procida at Whittier City Hall, 13230 Penn Street in Whittier, California, on Saturday at 10 a.m. to urge Congress to pass the For the People Act, the Truth and Democracy Coalition represent us, the Declaration for American Democracy Coalition, the Transformative Justice Coalition, Public Citizen, and faithful democracy in coalition with over 200 other organizations are holding similar events across the nation this week and on Tuesday, August 10th. On August 16th, less than two weeks from now, the redistricting process will begin where states would redraw their congressional districts based on new census data. According to a Represent Us analysis, 35 states are at high or extreme risk of partisan gerrymandering this cycle. And gerrymandering, in case you didn't know, allows politicians to select their voters by drawing districts that are safe so that they don't have to be responsive to the other side of the issue. They only have to appeal to their base. And what this does is create extremist politicians. That's at least one reason why we have extremists in control of both sides, in both parties. The For the People Act would ban partisan gerrymandering as well as set baseline standards for voting access and curb big money in politics. The Democracy Can't Wait events will send a clear message to members of Congress, don't come home until gerrymandering is illegal. Welcome to Bible Study for Progressives, a show where moderates, liberals, and leftists of all faiths and ideologies come together to discuss scripture, spirituality, and politics. We engage scripture in its historical context, plumb its depths for wisdom and guidance, and apply its lessons to current events and social issues. 
whether you're a liberal evangelical, a New Age spiritualist, a social justice activist, or a postmodern theologian, there's something in this show for you. Come, be energized in spirit and mind to understand the word and what it means to be a spiritual person in today's world. In the last episode, we encountered Jesus as the broker of God's wisdom to the common people, bypassing the upper classes who think of themselves as the keepers of wisdom. As the broker of God's wisdom, Jesus speaks as wisdom incarnate, inviting those who are oppressed under the heavy yoke of the ruling classes to take instead his yoke, the yoke of the new society, which is easy or kind. In this episode, Jesus will debate the upper-class keepers of wisdom and argue for an interpretation of the law which is easier or kinder to the common people. Let's begin with Matthew 12, verses 1 to 7. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, a modern, relatively affluent Western reader might assume that when the text tells us that the disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain to eat, that they merely had the munchies and were grabbing a snack. Perhaps it had been two or three hours since lunch and these heads of grain were a way to tide them over until dinner. It's only natural to project our situation into any given text. Our situation is all that we know and are familiar with. The situation of the peasants in the first century Mediterranean world, however, was very different. Given the frequent food shortages in Galilee in the first century, and the widespread hunger and malnutrition among the common people, the narrator probably wants us to understand that the disciples may not have eaten for a day or more due to lack of food. This is not about affluent middle-class people grabbing a snack, but rather poor and hungry peasants trying to assuage their hunger pangs. The Pharisees are from the upper classes. They do not understand the situation of the peasants. They are not hungry or malnourished. And plucking heads of grain looks to them like harvesting work, something forbidden by law on the Sabbath. They don't understand why the peasants would violate the law by doing this forbidden work on the Sabbath. Now, if the Pharisees seem to us to be woefully clueless and blind, exhibiting a cold and callous attitude, consider that this same sort of thing happens in our 21st century Western society. Affluent people often insist 
that poor people adhere to the law even when doing so would be disastrous for them. For example, people sneak into the United States, fleeing war, violence, and crushing poverty in their own countries. But rather than empathizing with them and understanding why they might engage in this illegal act, many U.S. citizens condemn them for having committed a crime by entering the country illegally. You can probably think of other similar situations in which more affluent people insist that the law must be obeyed with no thought to the impossible situation it creates for people in desperate circumstances. Such is the situation that we encounter here, and Jesus' response brings that to light. He points out that David and his men illegally grabbed food meant for the priests, and that the priests presently violate the Sabbath by doing their work on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are not only applying the law inconsistently, but in a way that favors the powerful. David was a king, and the priests are part of the ruling classes. In other words, when the wealthy and the powerful need to break or bend the law, other people of their class can empathize, can understand them, and give them the grace to do that. Of course, sadly, we know this to be true in our time as well. Modern education and jurisprudence, modern systems of justice, have not rooted out this prejudice. This natural bias is a hidden dynamic that occurs in courtrooms all the time by highly trained, highly educated, and highly intelligent legal experts. Jesus here debates the highly trained legal experts of his day. Jesus is here making a legal argument. He is arguing for an interpretation of the law that is more fair and equal and therefore easy or kind to the common people. He is arguing for an easy or kind yoke rather than a heavy yoke. Then for a second time in this gospel, Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Having just mentioned the priests and the temple, Jesus, who has been claiming the authority of the priests to pronounce people clean and forgiven without any sacrifices at the temple, quotes a text that critiques the whole sacrificial system. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And calls out the corruption of the priests. Hosea 6.9 goes on to say, as robbers lie in wait for someone, so the priests have banded together. They murder on the road to Shechem. They commit a monstrous crime. Shechem was an ancient site of Israelite sacrifice before the temple in Jerusalem was built. This text in Hosea is probably not accusing the priests of being literal highway bandits. The imagery of highway banditry and murder is metaphorical. Hosea is accusing the priests of running a racket of sacrifice by which they accrue great power and wealth. The priests not only ran the sacrificial system, but were the ultimate judges in Israel. Jesus seems to be using the term sacrifice to refer not just to the sacrificial system, but to the whole monopolistic control of the law and its interpretation by the temple establishment an establishment which includes the priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the leading Pharisees, 
over and against their interpretation, Jesus asserts an interpretation of the law that lifts a heavy burden off of the poor and also condemns the whole ruling class apparatus of power and control over the people, calling instead for a society of mercy. A deeper irony here is that the Pharisees' objection is based on the violation of the Sabbath. Sabbath first arises in Israelite history in the context of providing food for the people. And not just providing food, but providing it in a very egalitarian manner. Sabbath first occurs in the Bible in Genesis 1, the creation story. But then it does not occur again until the birth of Israel as a nation, when the Hebrew slaves escape the Egyptian empire. During their wilderness wanderings, the people are to gather food for six days and rest on the seventh. And no matter how much people gather on those six days, everyone has just what they need. No more, no less. Everyone gets the same amount and the same kind of food. The prohibition against gathering on the Sabbath is predicated on the idea that they have accumulated enough food on the sixth day to last for two days. The disciples of Jesus in this passage do not appear to have sufficient food. The full context of Sabbath observance is not present. According to the ancient story of Sabbath, these peasants do not have enough food to be able to observe the Sabbath in its proper sense. But the Pharisees, being from the upper classes, don't see or care about that context. They insist on strict observance of the prohibition against work. But they actually neglect the whole law because the law of Israel is embedded in stories that give it context. They are actually being unfaithful to the law by insisting only on the code and not the context of the code. Let's continue with Matthew 12, verses 9 to 14. He left that place and entered their synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to cure on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. He said to them, Suppose one of you has only one sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a human being than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored, as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. As I have mentioned in previous episodes, synagogues in early first century Palestine were town gatherings of the people to attend to town business. So this conflict with the Pharisees takes place in a legal or political setting, not a religious setting. So the setting is that of a political or municipal gathering, and the topic is health care. Again, Jesus addresses how the law is interpreted. Whereas in the previous passage, the issue was access to food, here the issue is access to health care. Again, the upper-class interpretation reflects class bias. It would require a peasant, someone with already limited access to health care, 
to wait longer for health care rather than receive it when it is available. Normally, someone might have to pay a healer, if a healer were even available. But Jesus is in town providing health care for free. This is the chance for the man to be healed. The Pharisees don't care. They can go pay for healing when they need it. So to them, waiting a day is no big deal. And again, Jesus makes a legal argument revealing that even animals are afforded more rights and compassion than common peasants. He points out that they would rescue an animal on the Sabbath, but not this poor peasant. The peasant has to wait. Matthew Thiessen, in a book that was published just this year, entitled Jesus and the Forces of Death, makes a convincing case that the arguments that Jesus uses here in these two scenes, arguing for the right to food and health care for the common people, fit very well into legal arguments being used at the time around these issues. In other words, Jesus' argument is based on sound legal precedent of the time. So, in addition to reflecting the perspective of the peasantry, Jesus' legal argument could make sense to the educated upper-class scribes, provided they have sufficient empathy. And this makes sense because, as I have suggested in a previous episode, the author of Matthew was definitely a scribe and likely a Pharisee who defected from his class in sympathy with this peasant movement. The Pharisees then conspire to destroy Jesus. They conspire to destroy him because he has shamed them by defeating them in public debate. The upper classes prided themselves in their debating skills. And these Pharisees are likely scribes who are experts in the law. But Jesus has bested them in a legal debate. And so they have lost honor, and Jesus has gained honor. They have lost honor to a peasant. For someone from the upper classes to lose honor to a peasant is an unbearable scandal. So they conspire to destroy him. And Matthew demonstrates for us through these two stories of Jesus defeating the upper class scribes in public debate that this peasant wisdom teacher is wiser than the wise men of the old society. Another interesting part of the legal context that Matthew Thiessen highlights in regard to these two scenes is that one of the debates in ancient Israel in regard to the Sabbath was whether it was a violation to fight in war on the Sabbath. To be clear, the debate was whether Jews were allowed to repel attackers, fight defensively on the Sabbath, in other words, to save their own lives. But here the debate is about healing, not fighting. Throughout this story, Jesus wages a campaign of healing rather than a military campaign. Again, we see healing replace killing. When it does come down to defending his own life, Jesus will refuse the option of self-defense. He will stop his followers from defending him. Let's continue with verses 15 to 21. When Jesus became aware of this, he departed. Many crowds followed him, and he cured all of them. 
and he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This passage begins with Jesus departing when he hears that the Pharisees plan to destroy him. This is the first time in the story that we hear that his enemies plan to kill or destroy him. The last time that we saw Jesus make a retreat was when he heard that John the baptizer had been arrested by Herod. But if you recall that episode, Jesus retreats. The Greek word is usually translated withdraw. It is the same Greek word used here in this passage. He retreats into Herod's territory. The retreat turned out to be an advance. The same thing seems to be going on here. Jesus retreats, but continues his campaign of healing. The narrator makes a point that he continues to heal the crowds. Not only do we have the third mention of a mass healing campaign, but the crowds, as I've mentioned before, reflect his success as a movement organizer, and they offer some protection. His campaign, in other words, is advancing. Nevertheless, he tells people not to reveal him, not to reveal his whereabouts. These instructions let us know that Jesus is trying again to go underground, so to speak, to avoid detection by the authorities, leading a stealth campaign. But the narrator lets us know that Jesus is not only evading the authorities, but also employing a quiet, nonviolent strategy that will defeat the authorities. The narrator quotes another Isaiah passage that has to do with the liberation of Israel. The language depicts a sort of nonviolent conquest of the nations, the Gentiles. This quote speaks of God's servant, which is Israel in Isaiah and Jesus embodying Israel here in Matthew. God's servant conquering the whole world without hurting a fly. In other words, Jesus will nonviolently, through a campaign of healing instead of killing, overtake the Roman Empire, the ruler of the nations. In the next episode, Jesus will speak of plundering the house of Rome and binding its strongman. Until then, my name is Bert Newton. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and it allows you to rate if you like us. This has been episode 29 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. This has been Bible Study for Progressives. If you enjoyed the program, please subscribe to our podcast or put us in your favorites and write a five-star review. Tell your friends about us and share us on social media. Follow us on Facebook and click the donate button at modernlectionaries.blogspot.com. Your support will help us reach more people 
produce more and better shows, and cover the cost of production. Feel free to send me a note or comment on the show. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Rich Proceda. Thank you for listening.